0: Good morning, church family. You may be seated for just a moment. It's always good to remind ourselves of how God has faithfully instructed as we've moved through the book of Ephesians together. We've understood from the onset of this precious book that God, through Christ, desired to show his mercy and his grace to us. He sought us out to restore a right vertical relationship with him. We were hardened and darkened and deadened in sin and estranged from him. But God in his grace sought us out through the finished work of Jesus Christ. As we moved into the the back half of the book of Ephesians, we've understood that as well as God's desire for us to have a right relationship with him vertically through Christ, He also desires for us to have healthy, God-honoring, Christ-reflecting horizontal relationships between others. It's in this portion of Ephesians that we find ourselves being dealt with lovingly and patiently through God's Holy Spirit as we're told what right horizontal relationships are supposed to look like. Last week, we tackled the difficult topic of, of biblical submission We're told that in different spheres of life we're to submit humbly and obediently to society, to the authorities that God has put in place and also to church leadership that God has benevolently given to his church. And then we got to a word to the wives, right? We got to the difficult theme of biblical submission of a wife to her husband. And if we thought that was hard, Today we, we get to take a look at the next portion of, of scripture where we look at the instructions given by God to husbands. By means of introduction, John Stott says this in his commentary on Ephesians. He says, does it sound like the requirement of submission is hard for a wife? It is, right? And Stott continues and says, I think that what's required of her husband is even harder. Not that he loved her with a romantic or sentimental or even aggressive passion, which frequently passes for genuine love today. Instead, he is to love her with the love of Christ. This is the totality of self-service. He is to love her with what is sometimes termed Calvary love. No higher standard is conceivable. A Christian husband who even partially fulfills this ideal preaches the gospel without ever opening his lips. For people can see in him the quality of love which took Jesus to his cross. And that's what we begin with this morning. We're gonna look not only at the love that a husband ought to have for his wife, but ultimately the love that Christ does have for his people. This is a perfect ideal upon which we depend upon the Holy Spirit to live out. And for those of you who aren't husbands or will never be husbands, this message this morning is for all of those who are in Christ. And it's for all of those who are not yet in Christ. This is the gospel plainly displayed through Jesus. Let's look at the the text together. I'll invite you to stand again. We're going to read from verse 22 of chapter 5 through the end of this fifth chapter of Ephesians. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church his body and is it himself its savior now as the church submits to christ so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands husbands love your wives as christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Father God, we come before you this morning, and we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for your Holy Spirit that allows us to understand it, to allow, that allows us to be corrected by it, and to apply it rightly to our lives. We ask, Lord, humbly, that you would allow your word to examine us today, to examine our hearts, to see if there's any wicked way in us, Lord God, and to make us more conformed to your son, Jesus, who ultimately and perfectly displayed love for us. We ask all of this confidently and gratefully in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. In your bulletin today, you'll find a lot of words that start with S. My wife pointed out that one of those words wasn't short, so uh, the sermon might look lengthy, but we're going to move through this fairly quickly today that God might illuminate in us the love of Christ and how it ought to be lived out. We'll begin today's text looking at the 25th verse of the chapter. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her there's the ideal, there's the, the call that we're to love husbands, our wives, as Christ loved the church. But we'll recall from last week, as wives were given their instructions, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. We saw that ideal, and we saw that, that no sinful human being has the ability to submit to someone as to the Lord. That's the mark, that's the bar. And we see the same thing this morning. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is a a high calling. Galatians chapter two says, Paul says, in the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is the God man completely submitting himself to the will of God the father and handing over his life for sinners like you and I. People who are incapable of living out the high righteous calling that we're called to. Christ has given us a calling and we're called to walk worthy of that calling. But in ourselves, we can't. If you turn with me briefly to Romans chapter 5, I have some encouragement for us on this, and that is that we see the love of Christ perfectly on display in what he's done for us. I'm going to begin at verse 1 and we'll read through verse 6. Romans, the fifth chapter. Paul reminds us, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's his love on display. He broke down that wall of hostility. He gave his life for us that we might have peace first with God and then with one another. In verse two, through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And look at verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But if we look at at verse 5 there, look what's remarkable. We've been learning over the last few weeks about the the power and the role of the Holy Spirit in the book of Ephesians. We understand that the Holy Spirit seals us, guarantees that we have an inheritance that's waiting for us in eternity. Not only that, we saw in, in verse 518, that remarkable verse that we so quickly pass over. It says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. We learned that that means to be propelled by the Holy Spirit, like wind in a, in a sail, to be permeated or seasoned with the Holy Spirit, right? And we also learned that that meant that we're to be controlled by or under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And so if we think about this verse and we understand that we're called to love our wives, we're called to love one another with the love of Christ, we're needing to understand that the Holy Spirit makes this possible. Christ gave us the example to follow, right but the only way we're enabled to follow that example is because of what god's word says his love has been poured into our hearts through the holy spirit you picture like a like a funnel god's love being poured into us through the indwelling holy spirit that has been given to us as believers because of that we have at least a partial ability to live out the love of christ as husbands for our wives Now, the the example that's given there is the supreme example. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And just a a brief application on this, there's gonna be a few application questions for the men here this morning that are husbands. An honest call to, to introspection, right? When we think about our wives and giving up our lives for our wives, if somebody was to physically threaten our spouse, we're quick to say, oh yeah, I'll take the guy out back. I'll protect I'll lay down my life for my spouse. But if we're really honest, sometimes we won't lay down our lifestyle for our wives, right? Sometimes we won't set aside our own personal interests because we're serving self. But our call is to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Moving into the verse 26 of Ephesians chapter 5, we see that the, the love of Christ also, in addition to being a self-sacrificial love, a love that led him to lay down his life, we see in verse 26 that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Husbands, like Christ, we are called to sanctify our wives. My wife will tell you that I've helped her be sanctified many times, right? That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about uh, giving our wives an opportunity to be patient or to be forbearing, right? Not that kind of sanctifying, but to point our spouse to be more like Christ. As we began the fifth chapter of Ephesians, Paul says, therefore be imitators of God as God's beloved children. The role of, of marriage, is for a man to assist his wife in becoming more like Jesus and a wife to help her husband become more like Jesus. And guess what? The double meaning that we'll see throughout this text this morning is the church has the same role, to help every single blood-bought follower of Jesus Christ become more conformed to the image of Christ. But the role in sanctification, we have to understand, begins and ends with what Christ has done for us. He's sanctified us. There's some very interesting verbiage in this verse, verse 26, it says, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. This is an image that would bring to mind something like a baptism, like a profession of faith. But more than that, in doing some research, this points to what the Greeks would have had as, as a nuptial bath. A bride would be would be bathed as she's adorned for her wedding day. A special ritual that illustrates the exclusivity and the cleanliness and the purity with which a woman gives herself over to her husband in marriage. To really understand this text, there's a, a bit of Old Testament homework that we have to do. And I'm gonna invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Ezekiel chapter 16. We're going to read a a fairly lengthy allegory that helps us understand this this nuptial bath, what a a bride does as she's presented to her husband on the wedding day. The allegory is hard to understand, so follow with me. We're going to begin at verse 1 and read through verse 14 of this text. The caption, you'll notice, is the Lord's faithless bride. Much like the text that Sean read for us this morning, this is God talking about his people Israel. The allegory is pointing to his covenant people. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day that you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with any salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of the things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred, and on that day you were born. This is the picture of an abandoned child, left with the umbilical cord still connected, left for dead. And in this allegory, God, in his mercy, finds this, this child, and he says in verse 6, And when I passed by you, and I saw you wallowing in your blood, I saw you in your blood, and I said to you, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up, and you became tall, and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed, and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you are at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. This should make us think of the story of Ruth and Boaz, right? The corner of his garment is is that which suggests entering into a covenant relationship, a proposal of marriage, so to speak. Continuing in verse 8, I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus, you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth." You ate fine flour and honey, and you grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord. And I'm going to give you just a minute to read silently for yourselves, verse 15, if you would. This is what God does for his people. This is what God does. He takes us in defenseless, impure, in our uncleanness, and he draws us to himself. We see the the picture here. This bride is taken in, and she's washed, and she's anointed with oil, and she's finely clothed. And verse 14 is where the indictment begins here. It says, And your renown went forth from among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord. Throughout Ephesians, brothers and sisters, we've been reminded that it's not by works that we should boast. It's not because of us, of our salvation. But in this, we see again, God adorns his bride. It's his work. And then what do we do? What do we do? As we, we looked at that text with Sean this morning, we, we understand from the historical book of Hosea, that Hosea was told by God to marry this prostitute Gomer. And we read that, and we can easily catch ourselves identifying with Hosea. We feel that we somehow have the high ground. But a recent conversation, that was wisely said to me, we need to identify as Gomer in that story. We're the unfaithful ones. We're the ones that required God to seek us out, to clothe us, and to do all of it for us. It's him that sanctified us. And as we we move through our our essays, we're moving quickly, right? We also see that this is a a sacred relationship. This is intended to be a relationship that is exclusive, speaking both of marriage and also God and his people. If you would just skip down to the, the very end of Ezekiel chapter 16, the entire chapter warrants reading. It is a heavy, heavy passage. That shows the relationship between God and his unfaithful wife, his unfaithful bride. But look at sacred covenant commitment. Would you? Verse 59 of Ezekiel 16. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. And in verse 62, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you will remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for you and for all that you have done, declares the Lord. This is a covenant love. This is a sacred love. This is a love that says, no matter what you've done to me, no matter how you've taken the relationship for granted, and even in the the horrible, painful reality of what some may have endured like infidelity, there's the faithful example of God taking his bride back again. That's covenant love. Can we love like that? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we're enabled to do so. The other thing I want to point out from this allegory before we move much further is that we see the lapse of time. We've talked about how God inserted Kronos into eternity. He's made things so that we experience time. And what a better example than marriage. We think about marriage and we see that that allegory that we read through in Ezekiel there and we see that he waited patiently for his bride. And if marriage is an example of discipleship, what a perfect example because it's a lifetime long discipleship. A quote from a John Piper and Justin Taylor book that I've mentioned a few weeks back, the book is called Sex and the Supremacy of Christ, The explanation is made. It says, The living God seems content to work in individuals, you and me and the person that you're trying to help, on a scale of decades, throughout a whole lifetime. At every step, there's some crucial watershed issue. What will you choose? Whom will you love and serve? There's always something that the vine dresser is pruning, some difficult lesson that the Father is teaching the children he loves. It is no accident that God is love and that love is patient fit seamlessly together. God takes his time with us. If you, if you think about the application of all of this, this sanctifying love of Christ, this exclusive covenant relationship and a lifetime of, dis- of discipleship, we can picture those quintessential old couples sitting together, a husband and wife that have, have been together by one another's side for 40 or 50 or 60 years and they start to behave alike and they start to look alike, right? Right? But what's God's ultimate purpose in marriage? That we both start to look and act like Jesus Christ. That's the entire purpose of this. And that's the entire purpose of his church. Over time, through a lifetime of things that we experience together as brothers and sisters in Christ, might we be more conformed to the image of Christ. Take the long view on that discipleship. Returning to our, our key text this morning, thanks for the, permitting the detour in Ezekiel, I do encourage you to read the entirety of that chapter. It's just, it's just rich. We see in, in verse 27 that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That's God's work there. And in verse 28, we see, in the same way, husbands should love their wives... As their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. This is a a call for for selfless love. If we think about scripture, we've got the golden rule, right? Like, love others as you love yourself. Now, the bar seemed pretty high. Love like Christ does. So, Paul kind of dumbs it down a little bit. Maybe you could at least love your wife as much as you love yourself. Like, that we understand, right? We love ourselves, that's built into us. We, we look out for ourselves. In what way do we, we demonstrate then that we're loving our wife like ourselves? One is in consistently praying for and with our spouses. Men, do we do that well? Do we pray at all, right? And if we do pray, do we pray for our wife? Do we pray with our wife? And are our prayers effective? One verse that I'd, I'd call your attention to this morning is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. The apostle Peter gives some instructions on, on married life and the role of a man as a spiritual head of house. And it says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to a woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs to you with the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Well, that's a hard one to understand, right? So we're supposed to pray for our wives, but in certain cases, God might hinder or not listen to our prayers. What's that all about? Brother Robert shared a great article this week with me and uh, written by Wayne Grudem. Has some really great practical explanation of what this means. You're supposed to pray for your spouse, but if you're not caring for your wife in a way that's tender, that's understanding, then it puts a divide between us and God. Grudem says, The hindering of prayers is a form of God's fatherly discipline, which Hebrews 12, 3 through 11, we'll look at that next week, reminds us for our good and is given to those whom God loves. So concerned is God that Christian husbands live in an understanding and loving way with their wives that he interrupts his relationship with them that they not do so. No Christian husband should presume to think that any spiritual good would be accomplished by his life without an effective ministry of prayer. And no husband may expect an effective prayer life unless he lives with his wife in an understanding way, bestowing honor to her. You catch that, brothers? The application here is, what's our aim in our prayers? Are we praying for our wives in a way that we would see the work of the Holy Spirit sanctifying our bride? And furthermore, are we treating our wife in such a way that we would have unencumbered communication with God? Praying for our spouse selflessly. Back to Ephesians chapter five, verse 28 continues and it says, he who loves his wife loves himself. And then into verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does, the church. This idea of of nourishing and cherishing is one that's really important for husbands to understand. We are given the role as a a breadwinner, as a provider, to provide physically for the provisions of our spouse, right? And that uh, nourishment idea comes with it, making sure that there's food on the table, now, we're blessed that we don't live in a place where food is generally so scarce around our, our household that we have to give up our portion to keep our, our spouse nourished, right? We sometimes eat for sport. But, but I can think of how this nourish and cherish thing plays itself out in our households. I know that my wife loves me so much, I've never had the smaller portion of meat in my house, Right, like there's that idea though that the husband should give his bigger portion to his spouse. Maybe a little convicted the morning, right? But I have experienced the the dessert cold war. Right, they're like we're going to split a piece of dessert, and there's that one little piece left at the end, and like no, you have it. No, no, I insist you have it. No, no, you have it. Right, and and that's how it plays out until one of us decides that we're too pragmatic to let it go to waste, and someone's going to eat it. Right, but that's the the idea of nourishing and cherishing. Some of you may have experienced that before. But the real concept of, of nourishing and cherishing, we know from Paul. How Paul talks, when he's talking about this, he's talking about not physical food, not physical provision, but spiritual. We know that, that Paul addresses some of the elementary teachings and he calls it milk. And when he goes deep and he wants us to understand doctrinal truths, he calls it meat. And that's what a husband's job is serve your family meat, teach them. Lead them. Make sure they're well fed. One application for that, talking to a brother this week that, that uh, is in a little different season of life and he's got, got little people in his house, right? And if both mom and dad cherish those early morning hours in God's word to, to feed themselves and to be nourished by God's word and, and one of those little people needs some attention, husbands, put your Bible down and serve your wife. Let her be nourished. Let her be fed. Meet her needs first. The interesting thing as we move through this text is, like I said, it's not just about husbands and their wives. It's about Christ and his church. Christ and his church, he provides in his graciousness godly men and leadership to feed and cherish his church. If we look... At 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, I'm gonna use the uh, New King James version this week. We've, we've got a little NIV, we've got some NASB. Why not, right? The, the word that's translated here is most accurate in New King James, and that's Paul talking to the church at Thessalonica about how he was gentle in giving his instruction to the body. And he's like a, a nursing mother, cherishing and providing food, to the church. That's what Christ does for his church. He provides sustenance through his word. I want to point out back in in, in this passage that we're looking through in Ephesians, something really remarkable in terms of how clearly God communicates to us. Three times we're told in this passage. Husbands, love your wives. Verse 25. We see it again love your wives. And we see the third time, love your wives. And you know what else we see three times? We see three times as Christ loved, as Christ loved, as Christ loved. And to me, as I, as I reflect on this and I think about nourishing and cherishing, and we all celebrate this morning, adding to our eldership at Pacific Hope Church, That, well, God in his grace gives us imperfect men to be a part of feeding and nourishing. In John chapter 21, Jesus pulls aside one of those imperfect servants. And he talks to Peter and he asks Peter a question three times. Peter, you love me. Lord, you know I love you. Turn with me to that text. Let's read it together. It's just precious. John chapter 21 We'll begin at verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And, G- and Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything and you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. That's, that's Christ's patient love for Peter as he gives them the the sacred responsibility, nourish and cherish my sheep. That's Christ's love for his bride right there. Feed his sheep. As we move through our, our S's, we've got this sacrificial love of Christ that he lived, laid down his life for us. And we've got his, his sanctifying love that he washed us. And he and he prepares us like a a bride. He's done it all for us. He's dressed us and he's clothed us. And we've seen that the relationship is one that's sacred. It's designed to be exclusive. It's designed to be covenantal, with his forgiveness being extended as an example. We also see that we're called to to demonstrate a a selfless love, a love that prays for and, and brings about the sanctification of a spouse. And the next S we've got is kind of an unusual one. It's symbiotic. And Sean kind of mentioned this one. It's how we're supposed to be interdependent upon one another. If we look at verse 30 of Ephesians, it says, because we are members of his body. And verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And we read that beautiful passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where we're all part of one body. There's, an, an, there's eyes and there's ears and there's hands and there's feet, but it's all interconnected and it's all under the headship of Jesus Christ. Each with a unique function, but when God saves us, he doesn't save us as individuals. He saves us to be a part of a remnant community with an interdependence upon one another, a unity that we have amongst each other. Isn't that beautiful? And the way that, that God chose to exhibit that to us is by the institution of marriage. Back in the garden. Jesus quotes Genesis in Mark chapter 10, verses 6 through 9. And Jesus says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, that the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And haven't we seen this throughout Ephesians so far? There was Jews and there was Gentiles. They were far off and there was a wall of hostility between them. And what did he say? I'm going to make you one new society. This is the gospel played out through marriage and through the church. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. The, The idea of a symbiotic relationship is explained here as well. It says two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. What's a, what's a threefold cord? Malachi chapter 2, verse 15 Did he not make them one with a portion of their spirit in his union? This is how the marriage was designed. One imperfect sinner marries another imperfect sinner. And as they become recipients of God's gospel grace through Christ Jesus, the Holy Spirit is infused into that union and they're bound together. Designed to be inseparable and dependent upon one another in a way that points all of humanity to the reality of gospel work. To those in our midst this morning that may find themselves unmarried and and content in that or or unmarried and not content in that, it's important to understand that, that marriage isn't to be the end all of this symbiotic relationship. It's meant to be an example that points us to the end all. And the end all is us in Christ and us in the church. We're told, as Jesus said, that we've been given brothers and sisters and an extended family because of what he's done for us in the church. He's put us into the church in such a way that we are not alone. We're part of this symbiotic body with Christ itself, with Christ himself as his head. Isn't that beautiful? Family, united, because of what Christ has done for us. As we move into... The the tail end of this portion, I recognize we're going quickly, but uh, there's, there's so much to be examined in this text. It warrants a lifetime of study, indeed. We see in verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In verse 32, it says, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Brother Ty introduced us to the concept of how mystery is used in the book of Ephesians. Right? Mystery isn't something that we can't figure out. Mystery, in the way Paul describes it, is something that's plain for us to see. And what he's explaining to us is that this double meaning should be evident for us. A man and a wife like Christ and his church. The mystery is profound, and I am saying this to you, that it refers to Christ and his church a phrase that I've been thinking about this week is that oftentimes we come to, to marriage and we think of it, it's gonna be a fairy tale, right? Happily ever after. But marriage as Christ designed it is supposed to be a parable. Not a fairy tale, but a parable. An explanation of his redemptive love. An example of his redemptive love. Any They may have a, a certain expectation of what marriage is gonna be, Need to understand that it's broken sinners brought together by the love and grace of God for something that is sacred, something that is sanctifying, something that is selfless. And as we understand that, that marriage is a parable, we need to recognize that the, the Bible begins with marriage. Back in the garden, it begins with that. The Bible has marriage as its central theme throughout the n- narrative of redemptive history, we see marriage over and over again. The Bible highlights sexual and, and relational brokenness as a key area that Christ came to redeem. But moreover, the Bible ends with marriage, the bookend, the beginning and the end. It starts with, with what we've referred to as garden-variety marriage, right? Sinners, expelled from the garden because of their unwillingness to subject themselves to God. But God, throughout the story of redemptive history is saving sinners, calling us to Christ, calling us to repentance and forgiveness. And at the end of Scripture, we have what is the ultimate ideal, which he is is trying to help us understand the whole way along. This fairy tale, this picture-perfect marriage that we might aspire to, on this side of eternity, we won't understand it. For those who are in a situation where you're in a season of life where you might be considering marriage, I have two questions I wanna share with you. As you consider marriage as a parable and not as a fairy tale, this is a little bit of reality. You might talk to some of your brothers and sisters that have been married a while and get their perspective on what this whole journey is about. But if you're in a season where you're considering this, two questions. First, for the men. The question is, do I love this woman and desire to see her sanctified and blessed? And would I do anything to care for and protect her? Is your motivation for a marriage relationship her holiness, her well-being, her protection? Or is it you? And to women, am I prepared to to have and do I wish for this man to be my head? Would it be for my long-term blessing and for the advance of Christ's kingdom to submit to him? Those are very different questions than than the world asks about marriage. Is this marriage one where I'm willing to to go into this recognizing that selflessness, the sacrificial love of, of Jesus Christ, and his sanctifying work for my spouse is my aim? It's a parable. In verse 33, we're reminded both as husbands and wives of what this ideal is supposed to look like. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That's the gospel call. That's the the way in which Christ has demonstrated his love in a way that we can imitate If you would turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. The ultimate wedding, the ultimate marriage, that which all of Scripture points to. This is the grand finale. For some of us, we've seen broken marriages, we may have experienced broken marriages, we're broken people. And that's why all of Scripture points to what Christ has ultimately done for us. He's washed us. He's bought us with his blood and he's set us apart. And he's preparing us to be made one with him perfectly and inseparably. Verse 6 of Revelation 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us result and ex- rejoice and exult, and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. For the bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is what awaits church being ultimately unified with Christ. Made holy, clothed in his righteousness. This is what all of marriage is to point to. Be encouraged, church. Christ who has begun the work in us is faithful to complete it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that your word from the beginning to the end reminds us of your holiness, reminds us of your steadfast love, and points us to the covenant that you have made with us through your son, Jesus Christ. You have promised, Lord God, that if we repent and we turn to you, Lord God, you will wash away our sins. And you will call us, who are not your people, my people. We thank you for that. And we pray, Lord God, that your Holy Spirit would encourage Pacific Hope Church. You would build us up with marriages that honor you. That despite our shortcomings, despite our sins, despite our failures, Lord God, that we would aspire to submit ourselves to you and to live in a way that your plan is on display that you might be praised, and that you might be honored. In Jesus' name, amen.